My purpose in life is to leave my dent in the universe in absolutely everything I do, as well as to inspire and help others do the same. For someone to leave their dent in my life is a privilege. For me to leave my dent in someone else's life is an honor. But to inspire and help others leave their own dent in the universe is an indescribable feeling. I plan on doing this through this podcast by celebrating my guests and inspiring my listeners, all while leaving my own dent in the universe and helping others do the same. My name is Fer Andrade, and this is Denting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Denting. Today, I have another special guest. Glad to have you back on here. Definitely been looking forward to this. Alicia Wilson, how are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? Very excited. Very <laughs> excited for this. Back. Yeah. Um, welcome back. Yeah, I, I just told you right now that I have a lot going over because you've done a lot. And it's actually very exciting for me because something I look forward to is inviting people back just to create that connection. Because the reason I started this podcast was to meet people through this way and have these sort of conversations and you're the only person that I met in the first season through the first 10 that I like did not know at all before <laughs> this so it's exciting and I'm glad we're doing this yeah me too this is really cool and I appreciate being back on here well to get started um bit of background we recorded first episode denting uh number three um and you had a lot of things with with your resume and your mentality, and we talked about that. Um, and it actually is the the denting with the most views to this day on YouTube, which is interesting. <laughs> oh I, I hadn't told you that, so that yeah. was cool. First one to 100, and right now it's at 117 last time I checked. Um, but let's see, where did we leave off last time? I think you were flying to Budapest literally the day after we recorded. Yeah, so I was flying to Budapest for the European Championships. Um, which was actually my first international senior meet. And then I went and trained in Bath National Center until the Olympics. Okay. Yeah. How long was that? That was a long time. I think I left in like May or April in here. And then I don't think I left for Tokyo until mid-July. And then we did a training camp. And then obviously the game started at the end of July. So it was a long period and I was away from Cal from that period all the way through till the start of school again. So, yeah. Yeah. And the, the last time you talked about the European Championships, you mentioned that it wasn't as serious of a competition as the Olympics, obviously. How did that end up working out? You said it was more of a celebration run, was it? Was it serious or what was the case? I think it was a huge learning curve. I didn't realize how quick I needed to swim in the morning. I actually went in ranked third and there were two British girls, unfortunately, that went faster than me. And with a two nation rule in swimming, it meant that I couldn't even progress to the semi-final and the final, even if I wanted to, because there were two girls from Britain that ranked ahead of me, even though I fell inside the top 16. So that was really hard because I'd kind of come off April and the championships and being on a really high high and wanting that to be my celebration but it was what I needed and kind of put a fire a spark under my bum I guess okay. and had me go through to the Olympics but it definitely made me nervous it was not what I thought it was gonna be okay so it humbled you down a, yes. a bit okay <laughs> yeah and uh I mean after after that I saw actually you didn't compete in the IM at the European Championships did you I competed in the 200, but not the 400, okay. but I couldn't even make it through to the um, the semi-final for that reason. Okay. Yeah. yeah, for the two. Mm -hmm. So it's two per country, and you were ranked third. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Um, and then Tokyo happened in July, you said, uh, training camp in Yokohama. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yeah. How was that experience? Obviously, you, were, you went from the U.S., Competing in the U.S., mm -hmm. specifically in California, specifically in Berkeley. I'm mentioning that because there's all different restrictions in Berkeley and then in California and then in the U.S. So a lot to go on there. And then in the U.K. and then in Budapest and then in Tokyo. How was the traveling experience in the sense of COVID restrictions? It was crazy. Like, I remember it taking about two to three hours to get through the Japanese, like, border security, for example, and... 
being fast-tracked through all of these Special Olympic um, lines and it's still taking about three hours for doing about four COVID tests and just getting kept back for so long. Um, it was so straight because obviously we were also coming from the UK, which was red listed. And so we were lucky we didn't have to isolate, but it meant that the precautions we had to take were huge. So even on the plane, we were sectioned off from everyone else wow. um, that was kind of just there for business or whatever. And the Olympians were put together so we wouldn't have to isolate. And then getting off, it took a long time. And the trip to get to Tokyo was probably 20, 24 hours given all the COVID restrictions. How long was the flight itself? I want to say it was 12 hours. So from the moment we got to the airport in London, we were escorted and we weren't escorted, like we were escorted the whole way through until we were in our hotel rooms in Tokyo. So from London up mm -hmm. until Tokyo, wow. Yeah. Okay. That is interesting. But did you fly, well, you flew to Tokyo, Hotel Tokyo, and then you went to Yokohama? Yeah, so Yokohama is really close to the Olympic Village. It was about a 20, 30 minute drive, oh, okay. which was really good because it meant that we were kind of away from all of the noise for two weeks and kind of relaxed a bit and like having fun. And then it was serious, but it was only 20, 30 minutes and we were there. It was a yeah. change of scenery that mm -hmm. caused the whole thing. How was, before we get into like the village and the competition itself, how was the kit process? You you described how special that is, especially for uh, GB. How was that? That was incredible. It was more than I could have ever dreamed of, honestly. Um, they showed one of the videos at the beginning of the legacy, obviously, of Team GB. And that, you know, those kind of videos that give you chills. It was definitely one of those. And... You were saying it's it's special because of like the tradition that there is and, and all that. Yeah, definitely. It's really inspiring to have the people come before us and be on that screen telling us to wear our kit with pride and things like that. And then having a personal shopper kit you out and have you go through all the stages of leisure wear, sports wear, competition wear. Um, that was really cool and it was a two-day process. Wow. Do you, think it, do you know if that's unique for Team GB? Yeah, it is. So a lot of my teammates in, say, the US got their kit when they arrived in Japan. So yeah. each country did it unique to them. And so I was grateful to be able to do it in the UK and obviously show my parents and things like that. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, going into the competition and the village itself, you arrive in the village. What's the experience like? Obviously, there's a lot of stories of the Olympic Village, but even today, like, it's not the same as it used to be for a very obvious reason. So how was that? It was definitely strange. Obviously, everyone with masks and having to put gloves on and check your bags and things like that. It was extremely strict and waking up every single morning to do a COVID test before you could do anything else and things like that made it super weird. And even just getting off the bus to the pool each day and seeing all the camera crew and the VIPs and things like that, you'd expect to go into there and see a full stadium and you would go in and it was empty. Yeah. And that was absolutely crazy um, to me. And just knowing that all those cameras were a lot of eyes because no one was there. So everyone following you around was the audience. Yeah. No, that's, that's very interesting in a way like, Obviously, it's not the same amount, but for example, like it's you and me talking right now, and in the previous episode, a hundred people watched it, mm. and it doesn't feel like it. <laughs> but I can't imagine having millions of people worldwide just like staring at you through a camera live. Yeah. You know, because I mean, this I can edit any moment, but in that moment, like everything that's happening must be crazy. Do you think you realize that in the moment? I really did, and I was definitely swept away with it. Yeah. And then I remember after my first race, which was the heats kind of you know in a normal race you'd get out the pool and go to the warm down pool and reflect and the minute I was out of the pool you were whisked away to media and that took about 15-20 minutes to get through and you'd have the British Broadcasting Company then you'd have NBC then Universal and all those type of um, channels and you'd have to stop at each one and have an interview no matter how good or bad your race was and that was kind of when it was like oh my gosh, I'm actually here. Like, you know, this isn't a race rehearsal because I was thinking, you know, it doesn't feel real, there's no one here. Yeah. And then you get to that point and you're like, 
my mum and dad are watching this yeah. like it's actually kind of real <laughs> no know? that's that's awesome and i didn't know there were that many interviews mm. so that's very special um real quick how long were you inside of the olympic village because i know your competition was for two days pretty much mm -hmm. i was there for two weeks oh. so i was there a week before i started competing and then swimming goes on for about seven or eight days and we were lucky enough to be able to stay until all of the swimmers had finished and then per covid protocol as soon as the swimming ended we had to leave yeah. uh despite the olympics only being halfway through yeah yeah that was the crazy part for sure but that's awesome that you got to stay with the mm -hmm. entire team because like cameron for example she said as soon as her event was done yeah. she had to leave which mm -hmm. was crazy um how were the covid tests were they also saliva for you guys or were they the pcr we had a mix we had a pcr in yokohama every day and we had obviously the spit saliva yeah. one um every morning in the athletes village so we had we actually had people that had tested positive um months before okay. and they were put straight into the village because the saliva tests were less sensitive to the pcr tests yeah so they were less likely to get triggered um as a positive which was really crazy that that was even something we had to factor in yeah yeah that's that's very crazy like factoring all of that in mm -hmm. on top of like the biggest competition <laughs> of your life you know yeah was um w were there any mandates with vaccines to even get in I don't, I honestly don't think so because I remember there being a lot of uproar about one of the American swimmers not being vaccinated um, and he was a key person for Team USA and a lot of the media and the public were disappointed in his decision and I know that everyone on the British team were vaccinated and that was a requirement within our team okay. but for a bigger country like America I think just with politics and things like that and the freedom and choice that wasn't as black and white yeah no yeah it's obviously very mm -hmm. polarized i talked about it last night with uh cat as yeah. well and we dropped into the politics but uh separate from that how was the competition itself uh you had three races in two days um take me through the the first heat which i mean you were in the third heat and you had a time of two ten thirty nine. how was that that was good so we actually Unlike any other Olympics and any other competition, we had the heats in the night and the finals in the morning because then more Americans could watch it on the TV, mm -hmm. given they couldn't be there. So it would normally be flipped, and that's why my fastest time is the heat swim because I'm so used to getting up and swimming a final in the night. And I don't think I've ever been more nervous in my life. That was honestly terrifying. I was kind of like, I have one shot, and if I mess this up, that's my Olympic campaign over. Um, and then I got through to the semi-finals in a good place and I remember getting up the next morning it just being so hard because you'd have all your caffeine in the night and you had to swim fast to make it back obviously um, and just waking up and being like oh my god I this is a semi-final and it's the morning firstly like that's so strange to me um, and I just I remember feeling so tired and being like oh this is this is gonna hurt a lot and then Watching one of my teammates win the 200 free, um, watching actually Team GB go one and two, but Tom Dean, the person that I trained with in Bath, watching him win all of a sudden, and as someone I've grown up swimming alongside, that was the thing that I was kind of like, no, this is what the Olympics is about. I'm gonna get, it. I'm gonna get in that final. There's, I, I don't want to watch it. I want to be in it. Um, and I also remembered at Europeans, not even being allowed to swim again. So. That was kind of the spark that I needed. Um, and I think by the time I got to the final, it had started catching up with me that I was at the Olympics and just managing my energy became so hard. Yeah. And I think that's where I tumbled a little bit, but just to be even in that final was my dream come true and that was my goal. Um, so I, as bitter as I am when I look at the time of the final, there's no part of me that can complain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Take me through your your routine, and I'll go back in, into mm -hmm. the results in a bit, but your routine, you mentioned caffeine at night. What's your routine like pre, I'm not going to call it pre-game, but pre-swim, <laughs> pre-meet routine? So the, the semi-final and final, um, they were in the morning. So what the team managers had us do and all the performance and things like that, we woke up to like lights, like loomy lights that were cued to wake us up at 
uh, about five hours before our race. So if we were racing at 10, it was early. Yeah. We were getting up to try and get yourself awake, awake and moving. They then had you on a spinning bike, uh, really low intensity, but again, to wake you up with lights in your face. Um, and then at that point, you kind of went out over to breakfast and then the like race started to set in and you got the bus obviously over there and then a lot of coffee yeah. <laughs> um the like in each athlete venue you'd have um a snack bar uh fridges full of drinks like all the different sponsors coffee and things like that um and also within the team gb space we had um the same like we had Keurig machines, Nespresso, things like that. So that's when I would kind of fuel up. And then it was like warm up. We have put on heated garments because in swimming it can get quite cold yeah. um, under, over my suit. And then it was go time. Interesting. Yeah. And I can't imagine doing that three times in the span of, yeah. I mean, what was it? It wasn't 24 hours. It's probably like 36. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. That is crazy. Um, and well, you go through that routine basically three times. You get to the final. Your your semis is pretty much the same time. I mean, point yeah. two of a second uh, later. But it's it's still the like you're still there. You're in, and then you get to the final. And like you said, you're you said you were gutted. Um, that's why you texted me. I have it here. <laughs> like the final result was gutted, uh, but it was a dream to be there regardless. How do you? balance that in the sense of gutted with the result but you were there you know you're an olympic finalist that's so pretty awesome what's your what's your take on that how did you find that to be i think going in i was like okay well i'm going in eighth i'm going in last into this final and what's the worst that can happen i come i come back out eighth and that's obviously what happened so i knew that that was a possibility but i couldn't be disappointed with that and I think had someone told me a year before or when the pandemic broke out that I would be an Olympic finalist, as you said, I don't think I would have believed them. And even with those times, I don't think I would have believed them. So I was, you know, so upset after the race, but I had to put it in perspective because that's one thing that I've learned from these past few years, that perspective is everything. Yeah. And once I put that into perspective, it was kind of like, no, that that's pretty cool. And I, I can't complain with that and it has fueled me to keep going and I watched a lot of my teammates get get those medals and then I was kind of like okay no I, I want to do that again and I want to do it in front of a crowd in Paris nearer to home and really ride that wave again yeah how was um I mean you you described the the like energy and how you had to manage that were there nerves involved or, or what was the case? Because one, I'm not a swimmer. Two, I'm not an Olympian. Three, I'm not a finalist. But like a two second difference, I feel like is a bit. So was that the energy? Was that the nerves? What do you think it was? I think it was a bit of everything. Honestly, I think I just, I kind of let that one go. I didn't feel as sharp and I wasn't in the race as much as I wanted to be towards that last 50. So that last 50 was slow and that was probably where I added that time. Um, but yeah, I think it was the energy that it took to even just be at the Olympics. Like it's it's a hard concept to explain, but it feels like you've been kind of battered at the end of it, you know? And even just checking my phone after each session, it would be um, full of messages from people back home. And as endearing as that is, it was super overwhelming, yeah. you know? Probably about, two three hundred messages from different people after each race and those kind of things and then ringing my family ringing my coaches catching up with everybody in between that I think I got to the final and I was like oh my god because yeah that's the thing like it's it's a span but it's 36 hours I don't mm -hmm. think like even I don't understand that right now and to be like 200 300 messages after every race 36 hours it's like Damn, and then you're competing at basically your dream come true. All the, yeah, it, it's a lot. So that's definitely um, special and unique, and something that must be, I don't know, a pro feeling, I guess. Um, so yeah, sorry for filling up your messages, but <laughs> but I mean, yeah, top ten in the world. I don't think many people can say that. So congrats on that. I 
I remember during that time I told Cameron the same thing. Well, when Cameron competed, she competed like a week after you did. Mm-hmm. And I was right there. I had just got in surgery like three weeks ago. And I was like sleeping in a lot because my body was just still tired. And she competed at 4 a.m. like Berkeley time. And I had no problem waking up for that. I was like, yeah, very excited. And with you, I mean, it was a week earlier. So I was like starting to stand up. You were on and I was like, no, I was, I was up. I was like jumping on one leg. It was like, go, go, go. And it was awesome, you know, to, to see someone that's, well, like I told you in, in the text after the final, like to see someone that I know and that's within the same athletic department, mm-hmm. it's just awesome. So congratulations on that. Um, after that, like what, well, I mean, not even post-Olympics, but within that, did you get a chance to talk with uh, your Cal coaches while you were there? Because I know specifically in the 200 IM, within the top three, two were American. And I know your coach from Cal coaches in Team USA, not as a head coach, but she Mm -hmm. was still there. Did you get a chance to see her or talk to her? Yeah, I actually did. Every day that I was there, I got to see and talk to her, which was really nice. And I think that was where she became more of a support system at the games you know she wasn't as much my coach and giving me technical feedback and things like that that was kind of the job of the British coach that I had been working with and she was very respectful of that but she was the moral support that I needed through that and she hands you window box cards before uh, each competition even you know the dual meets that we do here and before each of my races she handed me one and they have a little quote on and I'd I'd take it and keep it in the back of my phone and she'd kind of give me a hug good luck and then I would do my race processes with my British coach and then after I'd see her give her a hug and that was kind of how the interactions went they were very small and meaningful and not really related to the race it was more like you know you can do this and you know that and use this to kind of inspire you and you've got it that's awesome that is very awesome I wasn't really expecting that so no she's awesome you've obviously expressed like very great things about her so the fact that she was that way uh maybe even mother figure in a way I mean that's that's very awesome um speaking of the dual meet I finally got the chance to go to one and interesting enough it was against Virginia interesting for I guess three reasons right one they're the defending national champions so it was a great race Mm -hmm. Two, your sister's on that team, so that must be fun <laughs> yeah. as well. And three, the second place in that, uh, in from Tokyo in the 200 IM, swam there as well. So what was that experience like coming back? I was definitely nervous because I hadn't actually, that was the first time I swam the 200 IM. That's also, yeah, they, they the mentioned Olympics. that. Yeah. yeah, and actually second and third from the Olympics are from UVA. Okay, I didn't know yeah. third place. Mm-hmm. It didn't have UVA yeah. when I searched. Okay. So, I was, I guess I was lucky in the fact that they didn't swim it, but even without them swimming it, UVA then had a girl that came fifth at NC2As in that event. Okay. So it was pretty stacked regardless. Um, they also had the silver medalist from the 400 in that race, um, Emma Wyant. So there was a lot of Olympic medalists in their team. And I think we were all shocked how close the meet was and how we stepped up, you know, we, we do have shining stars on our team, but we are also so lucky in the fact that we have, you know, those second, third, fourth and fifth places and people to rely on in the middle. And I think, you know, that is so important and that is something our coach talks about all the time. It's it's not, you know, it's not the stars that are going to win the meet. It's the middle pack that can support everybody and step up. And I, I guess it's similar in football or soccer. Um, having, you know, the whole team on board. And so that was special because that was something, you know, I didn't necessarily feel for my sister's team, but I was proud in having that for my own team. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I know another thing is you guys are a very young team right now. Half your team is freshmen. And I've gotten to meet a lot of them, actually, because they're in my class for uh, UGBA 199. So there's a few men's and women's uh, swimmers on in that class. And yeah, they were. They talk about their things and they're excited and nervous and, and all those things. So it was nice to see them compete, you compete, and just the whole thing. I went with my roommate uh, and we were like, yeah, we're watching the Olympics for free. <laughs> so, so that funny. was awesome. Um, Post-Olympics, 
you well the last time we talked about the olympics you had mentioned that like you weren't thinking about paris and right now without asking you mentioned <laughs> paris already yeah. so how are you feeling with that are you like is there a post-olympics stage bjorn that was here um talked about that it's literally called post-olympics and that it's a weird stage yeah are you past that now or, or what's the case yeah i i did struggle with that a lot actually i came back to cal and right from the start my shoulder was hurting it didn't feel so good i was out of shape obviously from taking all that time off um coming back to cal in, in august is weird because everyone's at different stages you know you have some people that train through the whole summer some people that have the olympics and then don't train and everyone's just all over the place and i was definitely towards the bottom and that was hard because you go from such a high high competing against the world's best to not even being in the middle of your team and that was like oh my gosh like am i ever gonna get back to where i was at the olympics and you know i'm in pain firstly with my shoulder like don't know what to do with that and i remember kicking a lot of sessions and not being able to use my arms um and all those little stresses and getting over that hump slowly and then kind of using the uva meet as a confidence booster and now building off of that has allowed me to think further ahead and be excited for this year and then the prospect of another olympics and things like that but i'm sure as bjorn mentioned it was tough and at first I was like, it's just a silly concept. Like, I'm sure it's not actually a thing, but actually I was like, wow, where, where do I go from here? And can I ever get back to where I was? Yeah, yeah, that is, it must be very difficult to go through that transition between, well, like you mentioned, best at Pac-12, top at NCAA, then European, it's like, oh shit. <laughs> and then uh, Tokyo, and then you come back here. And it must be a whole mix in within the span of a few months, right? Um, so before even going deeper or past that, do you think the Olympics and the fact that you're an Olympic finalist, like to what extent do you think that defines you? Honestly, in a strange way, I don't I don't feel like an Olympian, you know? A lot of people are like, oh, that, that's so cool that you went or, you know, I. I remember looking up to all my childhood inspirations and one of them being at my club in Guildford and being like, oh my God, he went to the Olympics and I don't see myself as that. And that's really strange to me. You know, I got the tattoo and things like that. And I still, I'm like, was that it? Did I go? Like I, I've always been reaching for the next step. So I'm like in competition. So I'm now like, no, that that cannot be the the last step, you know? Like, and I know it's not, but part of me doesn't really believe that. And I don't know if I ever will, which sounds really weird. <laughs> so in a way, the, the way I feel you're saying it is like, you don't believe that you did it because you, you still feel like there's a higher point in the mountain. You still feel like there's more to reach for. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I guess part of that is that's the mentality I've always had, you know, when you go to counties, you're then like, no, 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 but there's a regional level, I want to get there, and then there's a national level, and you keep going, and I, I guess the Olympics is the final destination for us type of athletes, and I'm kind of like, did I go, like, did that actually happen, because I've dreamt of it for so long, and it was so different to what I expected with the lack of crowd and things like that. But it was also such a dream come true that I'm like, maybe I'll wake up and I didn't actually go, mm. you know? And I'm in swimming and I obviously do have that expertise now. But at the same point, I'm just as kind of intimidated by other people or I stand behind the blocks and I, I don't feel any different, you know? Sometimes in my head, I'm like, no, come on, like, you can do this. This You went to the Olympics, Alicia, but in my head it still doesn't carry that much weight which is crazy because it's been the pinnacle of my sport for so long yeah yeah that is that is crazy like <laughs> to try and understand but i feel like there's it, it goes back to what i mentioned the last time we spoke with the done next mentality mm -hmm. and i'll talk about that more towards the end but yeah there's like great stories from from tim grover like talking about athletes like kobe and and michael jordan and it's like at that point, you're not going to get much better after a season, but it's shaving off that 1% and 1%. And for you, it, it's probably like, 
well, now I want to do it with a crowd. Now I want to place higher. Now I want to maintain the same time throughout all three races and, and things like that. And it's so special because you're already there. You're already top 10 and you're still trying to shave something off, which is, it's awesome. It's awesome. And it was not what I was expecting, <laughs> honestly. So, so that's nice to see. Um, with the vacation afterwards and the time off that you took, how was that in like resetting and how was it like to not swim for so long? Last time you mentioned that if you take a day off, it takes two days to get back in. Mm -hmm. So how was that? Well, I took three weeks off and part of me, I came back to Cal and I was, I was like, I wish it was longer. Like I, I wish that I'd had longer, but I also don't think that I can have, I could have digested my feelings, you know, even now um, about the Olympics and so just having that time with my family and being in another country and almost forgetting about the fact that I was even at the Olympics and that, you know, we'd come out of this really hard year and just being present and with my family was the nicest thing that I could have had. I loved every second and it was a short seven day holiday, but it was probably the holiday I could I'm most grateful for when I look back out of all the holidays I've had with my family and all the times we've been away that one was the most special because I really felt like I, I needed it and I needed to just be Alicia and within my family and kind of go back into my shell. Tell me about your the so try and connect this if you can what you're feeling in your shell and then the perspective that you talked about earlier is there is did that help in any way did that put things into perspective? Yeah, it definitely did. And I think I was able to put things in perspective, land back in the UK. Then you realize, wow, there were a lot of people watching back home. And you, we came back, we landed in Heathrow to a lot of press and got taken straight away to be surprised by all of our family and friends. And then it was kind of like the noise was still there. And then getting out of the country and going back into my shell, turning my phone off and Putting all of that behind me, even just for seven days, was so nice and quiet and rewarding. Now, I, I asked that because I also mentioned it with, with Cam. There's a chapter in a recent book I read. Actually, it was in the class with your teammates. And the chapter is called Meditate on the Immensity. And it's like going out in nature in a way or, or with people you're close to or whatever it is that may help and just finding your peace and realizing how small you are in comparison to everything else. I feel like too often people can get like stuck in the same routine and, and you're so fixated on getting things done. And then you realize like, this only has the value that I give it. You know, it's only the meaning that I give it. And I feel like at such a high level, you have to do that. And it's like the purpose of vacations. If you don't take that holiday, you're not gonna be able to continue working and you're just gonna burn out and it's, it's meant to reset in that way. So that's, that's nice that that mm -hmm. got to happen to you. Um, moving on, uh, the Olympics is awesome, but I feel like everything else that you've done is also pretty amazing. Um, tell me about the, the thing you did about mental health and a bit of service in a way with the um, Max Wendell Memorial Trust. Yeah, so I grew up swimming alongside Kate and Ella Wendell, um, Max's older sisters and Max trained with us in a different squad at Guildford um, was an incredible swimmer transitioned to soccer um, and was incredible in soccer as well and unfortunately suffered badly with mental health and took his own life at the end of January of 2021 so okay. recently yeah. um, and that was really hard hitting and it put a lot of things into kind of perspective as we said and hit me hard because I had really struggled with my own mental health um, more than I could have imagined and this was someone that was so close to home you know someone that I had grown up with and you know I remember being younger and my parents being like you know why can't you be like the Windles you girls like they're you know the perfect family that never argue and they all get on and that bond is so special and I think that's what made it all the more hard because there were you know they were three siblings that 
had a tighter bond than anyone else I know. And that broke that broke me, that knowing that and made me just absolutely devastated and being so far from America and detached, you know, especially in my third year, you, you kind of lose the closeness of those contacts. So with all of that in mind and um, and then setting up the Max Wendell Memorial Trust to help other people in the same situation that Max was in, um, made me want to give back. Um, and you know, it was his goal to play at the highest pinnacle of sports, whether that was in a Champions League or an Olympics and things like that. And you know, I remember going, getting my kit at kitting out day and being like, this is really special, but I, I wanna do something with this kit to help this trust. And so then I, when I went to Tokyo, I went with the mission of being like, okay, I'm gonna get everybody on this team to sign a top of mine and I'll raffle it off or I'll auction it off. You know, I hadn't quite decided yet, but I was like, I want to do something. And so that's when I, you know, I had to pluck up the courage to ask people like Adam Peaty and James Guy for um, their signatures. And that was kind of scary to me, but I knew I was doing it for something way larger than myself. And so my mum had it framed for me. Um, and then I did it actually here virtually uh, which was hard, but I unfortunately didn't have the luxury of time back home. And so that's when I set up that GoFundMe um, raffle with every, you know, just two pounds per ticket because I wanted anybody to be able to enter. You know, I didn't want to just cap it off at a high, whatever was going to give me the most money. And, you know, I remember, think about... 3,000 was raised and about 1,500 tickets were purchased or something like that and that was really cool to see and a lot of it was anonymous but a lot of it were younger children and just showing them the importance of giving back and trying to inspire them with the top were two things that were so important to me but also knowing what they were doing it for and knowing that they were doing it for Max I think was just the biggest part of that uh, raffle. Yeah. Well, first off, I'm sorry about that loss. I mean, obviously, I was aware of the situation, mm -hmm. and you didn't provide details, but it's under like we can understand what the case is with the caption that you gave. And I did see the raffle, and it was an amazing campaign that you did. So congrats on that. Um, and I think it's it's very special. Um, the meeting that there was for the Haas applications, Professor Edder mentioned something that was, it just stuck with me. He said, pay it forward. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's actually the title of a movie. And it, it just stuck with me. And again, like you said, you went through your own mental health issues. And that, that for me is like, it's in one of my essays, actually, it's called the, I, I just say, be the leader you wish you had. And I feel like you're doing both of those things mm -hmm. at the same time. And you mentioned that a lot of younger kids are the ones that put in the, the raffle and donated to that. I saw that the winner was a girl from Guilford. Yeah. And it was super funny because I saw your story and I'm like, Wait, what? Like, because I remember the picture you posted of the Olympics. Like, I qualified for the Olympics. That's how I met you. Well, not met you, but that's how I first heard about you. And I went back to it, and I, like, uh, swiped to see, like, when your journey started. And I'm like, you guys look pretty similar. And I was wondering, like, do you see yourself in that little girl, whether it be through the swimming or the club or just as... Who the, I mean, I don't know her, but who the, the girl is and those kids. And, and like you said, there was once an Olympian you looked up to, and, and now that's you. You know, how does that make you feel? It's definitely weird. I, you know, I remember being 12 and looking up to one of the Olympians um, that had qualified. And I want to give that back in a way. You know, I that was something that had always stuck with me through my swimming journey. And seeing the journey that he was on, I was like... I just want a part of that. I just want to be able to do that. And if I can inspire the younger girls or the younger boys, whoever it is, to do that, then that's special to me. And Sophie Keeble, you know, I think her mum had entered the raffle and didn't tell her. Or I, I, don't, I don't actually know. I know she hadn't told her that she won um, for a long time. And I, I didn't know who they were. I didn't, you know, when I pulled the name out, I was like, okay, this is great, but I have no idea who these people are. Like what country are they in, like, how do I contact them? And, you know, I hadn't, I managed to get an email and 
contact her and that's when I found out that you know she's a I think she's a pediatric nurse and um Sophie's her younger daughter and is a swimmer at Guildford and you know has been so inspired and insisted on taking that photo of winning with her Guildford kit on and her Guildford hat and has wanted to go to practice ever since and that brought a smile to my face because it was like you know even if it is just one girl that can be inspired by that that's amazing and I know that she's now determined to do something to fundraise for the trust and that on top of itself is even more incredible to me yeah to anyone that ever asked what denting is that is exactly <laughs> what denting is and that's awesome congratulations on on that and I mean hopefully it has a, a great impact whether it be to the trust but also to the kids you know and everybody else that was like impacted mm-hmm. by it so congrats on that that's really really awesome um on top of that, you've also done a few other things. I saw on LinkedIn that you posted about the talk with the water polo team, uh, high school team. Mm. Is that still paying it forward or, or what's all that about? Yeah, definitely. I think I realized I'm a lot closer to the end of my swimming career than the beginning. Okay. And I'm, I'm not going to be a swimmer forever. But if I can pass some of my wisdom or my experiences on, then I, I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat. And so I was actually contacted by a a charity called Hurricanes um, that works with, you know, empowering women and trying to give talks to different levels of girls and women and inspire them. And, you know, as just, just as much as I want to learn from some of the people within that charity, I wanted to be able to pay it forward. So when I met with the two founders, Garen and Lara, I, you know, I wanted to bring Hurricanes into cal but i also wanted to be able to give back and so they managed to um they were doing a speaker series with the water polo uh, pioneer school um in san jose i think it is and they were like you know will you come on and talk and i remember going on and i would prepared a speech but i'd gone very very different to what i'd actually planned to talk it was hard because i've never spoken for an hour never really spoken about myself without the prompts like you give um <laughs> So it was really daunting and it was over Zoom as well and I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But by the end of it, it was really, really wholesome and rewarding and, you know, a lot of them then messaged me after and, you know, we now have each other on Instagram and things like that and that's another kind of relationship that I am invested in with those girls and it's something that I'm really happy I did. What inspires you to do that? I think... I sometimes wish that I had had that person to kind of be like that to me, I guess, you know, as you mentioned. And I think I had this notion of, you know, when you reach the top, it's always going to be good and it's always going to be incredible. And the struggles you face, you know, as much as they do pay off, they don't they don't go. You know, you, you manage to deal with things better, but there's always going to be something that crops up. And. I wish that I had had someone to relate more to over that and you know I'd read biographies and things like that and one that I really enjoyed was Amanda Beard who was a US swimmer um, but I never had that in-person relationship that normalized mental health struggles particularly in a time where it's becoming the norm. Yeah, yeah, it is becoming a, a huge topic, especially in sports because of everything that goes on. But I think it is special. I also didn't realize it was only, well, no, I did realize it was only for for women, but I didn't realize you took that aspect into things as well because it connects to something that caught my eye. Uh, I'm not going to go into details because I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, but with the essays that you helped me out with and you showed me yours you mentioned like the feminist aspect to things and how you look up to Rebecca Adelington, Jessica Ennis Hill, Michelle Obama, the Iron Lady and then your idol Gertrude Edrell. Mm-hmm. How is that you mentioned like reading books and then passing it on to others but is that something that you're looking to empower others on? I'm not sure I, I definitely think so you know I think Honestly, the biggest part of why I came to Cal was Coach Terry McKeever. And I remember being with my dad and hearing her speak in the basketball court um, when I came to visit about 
her struggles as a female head coach in a sporting industry and the empowerment that she beams and then linking that to Gertrude Ederly and those kind of people made me think, you know, wow, I, I want to kind of give back in that way too. And I think it's hard not to when your mentor and your coach does it so effortlessly. You know, I think if you talk to any of the cow women swimmers, they have this passion to pay it forward, particularly to young girls, because we are inspired by our coach and I guess it's a ripple effect and um, trickles down to us as well. That was literally my, my next thing. <laughs> it was Coach Terry. Um, and, and you mentioned like it's there's obviously all sorts of winning the amount of people she sent to the Olympics everything she's won, like all these recognition, but you say that the best thing is how she empowers others around her. And I mean, that's that's really special. And I think it also leads into your team culture and, and who you guys are as a, a team. I feel like, like, where do you think your culture comes from? Like something that I view as maybe different is that you guys, well, I've seen it on Instagram, for example, you guys do the team picnic or the pumping uh, painting or, or things like that, where it's like, I know it's, probably designed so that you guys aren't going out <laughs> but it's still like different from everybody else I don't I'm not sure too many teams would get together that way mm-hmm. um and to be that disciplined so is that all from her is that from the team is it a combination I think it's a combination you know you obviously have your seniors and juniors that then pass that on to the freshmen who then become upperclassmen and then it's a cyclical effect um and I think that that culture has been molded over time by Terry but it's everybody's choice, you know. You did you dedicate so much time to your sport and swimming isn't easy <laughs> in any way and you've got to make it worth it whilst it lasts. And I think the message that she sends is very much, you know, there'll be a time where you look back and these will be the greatest moments. Not the times or whatever, but the memories that you have with each other. And I think that's when, like, the pumpkin carving and the picnic becomes so important because... It's a finite time that we're here and these memories will last a lifetime. So, you know, whilst we do have the discipline of being sensible in season and with COVID and things like that, it's also fun to be able to relax with the people you also kind of go to battle with, I guess, you know, and it is something we've made a lot more effort on this year because we have 16 newcomers and doing those type of activities is when we can get to know each other. You know, we're a, we're a non-talking sport. We can't, we can't really talk in the pool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess that uniqueness is fueled by the nature of our sport, but also by the culture that has been passed down by each class and the coaches as well. That's so interesting. Well, the first thing is it's very obvious, but I hadn't put two and two together thinking that it's a non-talkative sport like for us we're talking all the time and yeah it makes sense but it's interesting how let's say coach terry pays it forward and inspired you to pay it forward to someone else Mm -hmm. but then even within your own team she paid it forward to the seniors and juniors and then you guys pay it forward to the next class and the next and it's a cyclical effect and that's special you know i feel like even though that may be the role for a coach at that level it's not necessarily what everybody does some people find a way to win without doing that but I feel like this has a greater impact and I think that's what makes it even more special Mm. Um, but you did mention that there is a individual aspect to it obviously it's how bad you want it and what you you want to accomplish and Mm -hmm. you mentioned times are limited whether it be um, with the free time that you have one or your career as a swimmer so what habits have gotten you to where you are right now and and what's like a daily routine a day in the life of Alicia I think honestly the biggest thing is the mindset and you know I obviously we get up super early and we go to practice and then we fuel go to class go back to practice and you know fuel again and it's you know continuous and things like that and I think my biggest habits is Nothing physical, more mental in that, you know, I'm getting up and I know why I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing it for my younger self that loved to swim and enjoyed it so much that she was so excited to be able to splash around. And for moments like walking out at an Olympic final and being able to, you know, 
be at the UVA meet and when one of us wins, just everyone erupting. And that those little moments is why I do it. And I think that mentality that's become a habit, especially when I am um, you know, not wanting to do it or just wanting to stay in bed, remembering why I do it is, I guess, why I've been successful. And it is something that I've worked on my whole life and I, I will continue to work on it. But I also do think that it was very strong from a young age and that discipline and that drive, you know, if I set my mind to something, I, nothing is going to get in the way of that, you know? Yeah. And I think it's not so much a habit of being, you know, disciplined in my eating or something like that. It's more a habit of conditioning my mind. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's very relatable, but I would, like, personally, I do think there is, like, conditioning myself to certain diets or, mm-hmm. or something like that. But it is the mentality aspect. Well, it, it all is mentality, you know, but... I never thought about it as conditioning your own mentality. So, interesting. Um, and then there is there are further limits. I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about this, but the Olympic tracking with the app that you have to oh, put things yeah. into. Are you allowed to or no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like what is that like, and and what is it called? Is it called? I know there's one for UFC. It's like USADA. Oh, the drug kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So. Is it that same one? We have one called Adams. Um, And basically what it is, is, you know, when you do get to the top of your sport and you are on a national team, there is an expectation in sports that you do it clean. And I think, you know, that is just so important and doesn't even need an explanation. But the thing that comes with that is obviously the honesty and integrity of being tested. And so for the British people, it's an app called Adams that you put your whereabouts in every single day, you know, where you're training and then where you're sleeping at night. Um, So that at any point, a drug tester can turn up, even with me over here, you know, one of them can turn up and test you on the spot, uh, whether that be blood or urine, so that you are tested and honest. And that goes for every athlete at the top of their level, whether it's, you know, basketball or swimming for a different country um and a lot of us are on that kind of system uh it's obviously called a different thing for each country but that is hugely important and i think especially where we are with the day and age of being able to bypass certain rules it is super important yeah Yeah. no i mean that's i mean obviously it's not something that it's going to affect you because of your habits but it's very interesting to me how tracked that is and yeah, it, it makes sense, but it's sad that it, it even has to be a thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, even at the Olympics, there was a lot of kind of grudges against certain countries. You know, the ROC were not Russia. They were the ROC and the politics of allowing certain people with drug offences to compete um, does put a tinge in... I guess, a grey cloud over the sport and that's just so, it's not, that's not what it's about, you know, and I think it's hard to put into words but, you know, everyone does it for the fun and the enjoyment of it and there's no need to kind of put those things in your body and unfortunately we do have federations that do that or individuals that do that and, uh, you know, if it means getting tracked every single day, I think every athlete would say that they'll sacrifice that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 worth it for the yeah. integrity of the sport, and it's just so sad to see that mm-hmm. the competition becomes so superficial to the point where you're willing to cheat yeah. to get it done. And yeah, it's sad because it takes away the fun part, like you said. Even though it's so competitive, I mean, there's still that aspect of why you're doing it mm-hmm. in the first place. Um, lastly, on that topic. Are there things that you have to sacrifice? Like you mentioned the mentality and how conditioned you are. Are there still things you sacrifice at this point and how do you deal with it? I think I feel like I've sacrificed quite a lot this year, more than any other year. You know, we have team rules and just to be explicit, honestly, um, right now you can't go to a bar or um, a frat and things like that, which is understandable given the state of COVID, but obviously 
every sport has their own rules or lack of rules and ours is definitely on the stricter end and I fully support it and I advocate for it. It's hard being a senior though and knowing that you know today for example was the big game yeah. and not being able to go to that because of the sheer numbers of people and the risk that it took and the party scene um that is something that i've had to sacrifice and i'm happy to do it uh, because i know it will pay off but it's bittersweet obviously yeah. and it's hard um and then obviously there's the little things that you sacrifice like i don't even know your like my sleep and stuff like that or you know certain foods but in the end i guess it is worth it yeah there's a a pretty fun story that relates to this between the authors Ryan Holiday and Austin Cleon um, and it's basically Holiday was meeting up with Austin and, and they were just talking about life and, and they had a meeting and then they went to lunch and Holiday asks him um, how are you able to do everything in the sense of family being an author and then parties and, and all these things and he's like I don't and the advice he gave him because he's Older, older than him, and at the time, Holiday didn't have a family. Austin did, and he said, the piece of advice I, I can give you is pick two. Yeah. And the, and he said, it's it's either work, family, or the scenes, which is the parties. Mm -hmm. And he said, you can't do everything, but you can only pick two, and whatever you choose, it's, it's what it's going to be, but you can't, you know, like, expect to be able to accomplish everything. And I feel like it's the same thing because you have school, you have swimming, and you have your social life. And I'm not saying you have to necessarily just give up the entire social life, but obviously there are sacrifices, like if you want to go to the big game or, or things like that. And it's interesting, but picking two does pay off, whether yeah. it be making a top 10 in the Olympics or being a best-selling author, you know? So. Yeah, and honestly, it's interesting that you say that because I remember being a freshman here and sitting and, you know, when you sit and you get the induction and you get all the talks from all the different people in the athletic department and I remember the head of the men's tennis team at the time stood up and you know mentioned that and said you know you can be you know you've got three buckets here you've got your social side your sport and your academics and you can be world-class in all three but not at the same time no you can be world-class in two and whichever two you pick is up to you but know that if you try and be world-class in being a, a socialite and your academics and your sport, it's not possible. Um, and I know that I will have a lifetime after my sport, but I only have a matter of time right now for it. And so I'm okay with not being world-class at, you know, maybe the social side, uh, because I will get that later on. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's awesome. And I feel like it also involves some sort of grit, which... A bit out of ignorance because I, I don't know but does like your events are a bit more long distance than the sprints mm -hmm. something I've experienced with running for example many people are talented in the sense that their bodies are just good at sprinting yeah. and that's how it works possibly it's the same thing for swimming but for longer distances there's more grit involved in running and like for example you can be the fastest at a hundred a hundred meter sprint or a hundred yard sprint but when it comes to running three miles, five miles, ten miles, it's it's all about how much you're willing to train and, and the grit. Is that the same thing in swimming? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, most of the swimmers come in with their events kind of fixed and um, you obviously develop and grow into a certain event. And I guess that is based on your kind of talent. But the longer events do require a mentality of less precision that it needs for like a 50 you yeah. know you have 20 seconds in a 50 in a 400 im you've got five minutes yeah you know you have or the mile which i i don't do but a lot of teammates do you have 16 minutes yeah it's a mental game you know it's a different kind of pain it's a long prolonged um pain you know similar to running and that does take a lot of grit but you also have to train for it. And the training for it is really difficult. Like this morning, for example, we had three of us doing a 400 IM set and a few doing a 500 free set and then the rest doing a sprint set. And you look over and they're standing on the side of the pool and you know, it's so easy to be like, oh, I wish I was over there, you know, and they are working hard, but it's a different type of hard. Yeah. 
and there's us that are, you know, struggling to breathe, so out of breath, um, but we have to keep pushing because we've got to put our bodies in the same pain that we're going to have in the race. And yeah. that takes a grit, you know, and I, it is very similar to running and training for those events. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was just something that stood out and with everything you've mentioned, it makes sense that, that you're in that long distance aspect of things. Um, to start to close out the book that I had mentioned, the ego is the enemy that I read with your classmates. Something that, well, one of the reasons I started this podcast, there's many reasons I started it, right? But the most important one is to meet people and to learn from other people. One of the phrases that I have is study the greats to one day become one. And I think that the beauty in that is that many people look up to like the biggest names, biggest stars and think, ah, those are the greats. And I think that there's a beauty in realizing that the greats are around us, whether it be people that we agree or disagree with. I feel like everybody has something to it. And I mean, I mentioned that the last episode really stood out to me. And there's a quote from this book. It's on, I read on Kindle, so I take notes all the time. I highlight everything. And there's a quote that reminded me of our last conversation. It says, Bo Jackson wouldn't get uh, impressed when he hit a home run or, or ran for a touchdown because he knew he hadn't done it perfect. And my note for that was literally um, Alicia when she said that the personal best earlier this year just weren't the same and it literally like the the next sentence just says this is a characteristic of how great people think it's not the that they find failure in every success they just hold themselves to a standard that exceeds what society might consider to be objective success uh because of that they don't much care what other people think they care whether they meet their own standards and these standards are much more higher than everybody else's and that kind of comes with maintaining your own scorecard which is the title of the chapter and and having your own standards how do you deal with that because there is the objective success there is the personal best there there is the olympic finalist but for you it's like it's it's it seems like it's not not enough or not enough yet Mm -hmm. what standards do you set for yourself and what makes you that great person that holiday is talking about to continue pushing i think it is a delicate balance definitely i think i'm trying to learn to embrace those successes more and appreciate them more but I think part of the reason why you know I guess my Achilles heel but also why I'm so successful is nothing is ever good enough and I I want more you know I always want to get to the next level and you know I remember texting my coach back home after that Olympic final when I digested my feelings and being like you know I'm really gutted but you know I think I can do it in Paris you know I I feel motivated now to do that and I guess the standards that I have for myself you know isn't necessarily I'm not good enough or this that or the other but I see kind of what other people are doing as you said like looking to the next level each time and I'm like I want to be that you know and that's the standard that I hold myself to um you know, a lot of my training partners are Olympic, they're Olympic champions or world record breakers and things like that. And I see that and I'm in awe of that. And I desperately want to do that too. And I feel like it's a little more palpable now having gone to the Olympics and having done what I did last year. Um, And that doesn't discredit my achievements. But in a way, I want to keep doing more. Yeah. If you could describe winning and the feeling that that is or the experience in one word, what would you say? Ah, uh, I'm not sure. That's hard. I'd If I could describe winning in one word. The feeling that you get, why yeah. you do it, something like that. Um, honestly, okay, this is a weak word for it. I'd say fulfilling. Because I think it's that feeling, you know, where you're overcome with so much emotion and I guess actually overwhelming might be another word. I think I personally set the bar so high for winning, you know, I might win a race, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've won. You know, I remember touching at the Olympic trials and seeing that time and being like, okay, no, that's a winning feeling. You know, I may have come second, but... I just went 209. I went the fifth time, fifth best time in the world and I didn't even think that I could go a 211, you know? And it's that feeling that your whole body is kind of 
in shock and yeah. overwhelmed with the feeling that you did it because that bar is so high. You know, I, I set it high that I don't ever think I'm going to reach it and it keeps moving as I get near it. So to kind of get that winning feeling is to get that bar and that's a hard feeling for me to capture because that is so high that I'd say it's pretty overwhelming when I can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is an overwhelm overwhelming sensation just to continue raising and raising and the done next aspect, especially at such a, a high level. And I just bring that up because it's actually one of the questions in the Tim Grover's new book, Winning. Uh, he's the author of the phrase I talked about with the done next. And it's something I really like identify with, but I also see it in you and like that cleaner mindset. Um, and it's something that's pretty awesome. And I don't know. I let's see. I figured you'd like it, so. Oh, that's there. You go. Thank you so much. That's made my day. That's insane. Thank you. So hopefully you you enjoy it a bit, but it talks about all sorts of things. Oh, this and is gonna make me well up. Oh, thank you so much. No, anytime, thank anytime. You. I hope you enjoy it, and I mean, it really helped me out, and hopefully it will to you as well. And thank as you. you start competing, I know there's a big meet in Minnesota coming up, and then. Paris in a few years now that you're thinking about it so um I have a lot more to talk about but we're short on time so so um yeah is there anything I I missed or no I think you hit it all I think that I just feel super grateful to have these opportunities and have someone like you as well that can shed light on everybody's experiences no matter where their journey is right now and I wish more people would do that because it's so important and so I just feel super grateful. Yeah. Well thank you for, for being here. I'm grateful that you were trust well that you trust this podcast with your story and, and that you're back here. Hopefully we can do it a third time after next yeah. season and we'll see what happens after that. But um yeah, I with with the time and what you have coming up I think we should cut it. So that's it for today. Thank Thank you to everyone for either watching on YouTube or listening on Spotify. If you're on YouTube, please like and subscribe. If you're on Spotify, just follow the podcast, share it with anyone you think would find this helpful. And I'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to my podcast and follow me on my personal social media accounts for more. All at Fer Andraes. All links are in the description. If this episode inspired you in any way, Please help me out by sharing it with a friend to help them leave their dent in the universe as well. That's it for today. I'll see you all next time.